Hello everyone, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part 10 of the Babel series, The Gate of God. This one's titled, The Only Way Is Through. Now, the entire Old Testament after Babel is the preface to God's return, with the pivot point being Mary. That's where we ended up in part 9. Through the incarnation, we learn that God will restore his rule and remove the evil powers. Now, Tolkien fans, Lord of the Rings fans, should recognize this immediately because we are living in part three, the return of the king. We are living in the messianic age now. Also, for anyone who wonders why Mary is such a big deal to Catholics and Orthodox folks, it's because without her, there is no return of the king. She is the turning point in this story, the mother of God. She's kind of a big deal, as in the biggest deal ever as she is the true gate that brings God to us. It's not a ziggurat. Uh, Christ came to do several things. Let's, re let's remind ourselves of this before we go too far. One, to take away our sins. Two, to transform our suffering. Three, to destroy death, giving us eternal life. And four, to ultimately defeat the demonic powers in the world. He came to wrest power away from those spirits that rule our lives and the nations. Again, he did not come to remove all suffering. We still have to deal with that for now. Now, as for the pain and suffering, that doesn't make sense. The only God that ever came down and suffered with his subjects is the God of Israel, the God who came to us. This is how and why suffering is transformed through Christ. A common question asked, by nearly everyone is, how can God allow suffering? I find myself asking this question. And then the next follow-up question is, how could this happen to me? Or how could he do this to me? Uh, that is exactly when we should look to Jesus, to God himself, who came here in the flesh and suffered a brutal and terrible death on the cross. So until you understand this um, and how Christianity works, suffering will probably never make sense to you. You will cry out, why, God, why? Even as you stare at a crucifix with Jesus looking right back at you with nails in his hands and feet and a gash in his side and a crown on his head of thorns and whip marks. And yeah, I guess he'll probably roll his eyes at you or that's what I would do, but um, he, he wouldn't actually. He wouldn't, I would. Um, so not only Christ suffered, but his own mother did as well. Uh, those closest to him suffered. His immediate followers, his chosen 12, almost all suffered horrible deaths. They were so hungry in one story that they ate barley right out of the field on the Sabbath, and Jesus got in trouble for that. But you don't just eat raw barley unless you're basically starving, in my opinion. Um, they were mocked and scorned. They had to hide and endure prison. Uh, millions of his subsequent followers have suffered and not in, peer, in fear or self-pity, but with strength, and some even with joy. All of them have imitated Jesus and experienced profound meaning in, in that suffering, giving incredible hope and rebirth to people who were once spiritually dead. And that is why Christianity does not die, and nor will it ever, which is hard for people to realize if you don't like Christianity. The only God of any religion that came here to suffer like one of us is that of the religion founded by Jesus Christ, who voluntarily carried his cross and showed us the meaning of redemptive suffering and then rose from the dead 
after being apparently defeated, he was not defeated at all. Now, this is the only religion that even makes sense when we can see how much pain is in the world. It is, the, it is only the person of Christ who can turn a cross into a gift. Uh, Self-salvation, that's a fool's game. Um, there's an Under Armour marketing team out there where they almost have it right, even though they really just shoplifted their slogan from Christianity. The t-shirt and shoe company assures us that the only way is through. That's the slogan of Under Armour. The only way is through. And then the next question we should ask is, the way to what? Under Armour, what, what is, where are you going? Is it a trophy? Uh, a scholarship? Um, I'm just here to tell you, forget such trifles. Forget them. If you want to get to heaven, stop trying to construct a gate or a tower of yourself. Stop chasing drugs and sex. Quit wasting your time on something that will impress your peers or massage your lonely ego for a few hours. The original saying, Under Armour, is from St. Rose of Lima and about a hundred other Christian writers. The only way is through the cross. The only way to heaven is through the cross. St. Rose of Lima said it this way, Apart from the cross, there is no other ladder by which we may get to heaven. We will all get to learn this. We all get our chance to learn this on the last day where the gate we are looking for is located. And it's not a gate or a ladder or a tower. The cross is the narrow gate and following Christ is the way. The spiritual rebirth found in Christ happens every day. These are modern miracles. And trust me, they happen all the time. You can watch it happen on someone when the penny finally drops and everything connects. Our modern mental health crisis has a single cause. It is taking the exit ramp off of the Via Dolorosa to hit the drive through at McDonald's. The cure is to be re-enchanted with your life, with who you are, with, with the struggle, with purpose. And the therapist needed is available for free, anytime, anywhere, and so is his mother, who can take notes for you and deliver them to the therapist for you. When people are released from their bondage of self, something happens and you can hear a reborn person tell you, something was lifted off me, quote, or another quote, I don't know how to explain what happened to me, but I am no longer the same. What they are describing surpasses science as no pill or therapy can explain what has happened. But once you see this happen to people enough times, you know there is something spiritual happening. And when these miracles occur, a prisoner is being released from the enemy, returned from exile to the side of God. What we don't realize in our day-to-day -day movements is that we are in the middle of a war. This is difficult to accept for modern people because much legwork has been done to confuse and steer us away from this fact. We are in a war, and this is a war far bigger and longer lasting than any human war, and this war has claimed billions of people already. We have been in a war our entire lives, just as your parents were in the same war, and your parents' parents were as well. The sooner you recognize this, the sooner you can do something to change not only your life, but your entire language of life. And once you recognize this war, the lens through which you see everything changes dramatically. The war is not with people. In other words, people are not the enemy. 
Now, if you were lucky enough to be baptized, you are already armed for this battle. But the battle is not against other people. In fact, if you think the war is against other people, like, say, Democrats or Republicans or Packer, Packers fans versus Bears fans, you don't yet understand how this war works. And you are still in the darkness, being distracted, diverted, divided, and deceived by a spirit. The prison still has you. So consider this question. When and why does Jesus get angry in the Gospels? When does Jesus get angry in the Gospels? When you read them, think about this. He does not show anger at the lost, or the mentally ill, or the blind, or the diseased, or the fools, or the poor, or the prostitutes. For us today, take note, Republicans, that means Jesus shows no anger at the crazy, the ignorant, the legitimate people in need, the immigrants, the addicts, the prostitutes, and the working poor. But notice, take note, Democrats, that Jesus also doesn't get mad at the middle class, nor does he talk down to the uneducated or those who carry swords or those who work in construction. Even if no one wore collars in those days, we know who's who in the Bible stories, in the Gospels. We know that Matthew maps to a businessman today and Peter maps to a tradesman. Jesus lives among both the wealthy and the poor, the soldiers and the pacifists, all within his chosen 12 apostles. And that alone should speak to you. The women of his inner circle, take Joanna, Martha, Mary, uh, for instance, they were all very different with varying personalities, wealth, and backgrounds. Jesus shows sadness for those who suffer, but he only shows anger at certain people. Most obviously, he shows anger at the religious hypocrites who love their self and reputation over God. He gets angry at the money changers who defile God by using the temple like a Walmart. He also tends to scold the wealthy quite often. And he shows anger at Peter, even calling him Satan, when Peter tries to stop Jesus from going to the cross. So in light of this, it's not surprising that Jesus doesn't get mad at Judas when he learns of his betrayal. I guess it should go uh, without saying that Jesus, fully divine and fully human, he knew everything that would happen. Now, given that he knows everything and reads everyone's heart, when Jesus gets mad at someone, he is sending a message. And notice that he doesn't stay mad at anyone either, but he only rebukes them. So what is it that Jesus gets angry at? Is it, is it the people? Does the Pharisee, who is a body and a soul, anger Jesus? No, I don't think so. He is angry at their failure to fight the spiritual combat. He expects more of the Pharisees because they have been given much, but have been led astray, blinded by worldly things. First, Jesus wants them to love God, and that's what they strive for. And second, he wants them to help the orphan and the widow to care for the weak and the poor, which they kind of don't. They have caved into pride and pulled the old trick of worshiping the self while calling it God. The number one thing that drives people away from uh, the church or any church, especially the Catholic church. It's so easy to do um, and most tempting for those in the elite or wealthy classes of society, the educated. Um, here's the thing. This is important to know. God loves the Pharisee just as much as the tax collector 
and the prostitute. But he expects the educated and comfortable Pharisee to do more, to reach out, to go all out Mother Teresa on this world. So those who he has chosen, who have faith, who have the gift of faith, are supposed to share it, receive it, open the door to it, bring others in. Now the spirits of darkness has overtaken those at whom he expresses anger. They have failed to convert daily to God in their spiritual combat, to surrender. They don't do the St. George uh, sign of the cross and ask for help. Uh, Jesus does not mince words in saying that those who are given much will have much demanded of them. The Pharisees are those blessed with intellect, education, and the ability to interpret scripture and preach God's word, but they have forgotten their own orders. They are to be servants. Jesus is always in servant mode. When he's not praying, he's serving, he's healing, he's helping. So that is the problem with the Pharisees. They serve themselves under the guise of loving God. The Pharisees are Ben Franklin saying, God helps those who help themselves. That is the spiritual lie whispered in their ear that they have not rebuked and cast out. They let that seed in and it starts to grow in them. The Pharisees can cast demons out of others, but the ones that Jesus scolds have not yet cast the demons out of themselves because they are not fighting the spiritual fight. Jesus can tell immediately who is lying because he knows all of our hearts. They know he knows the number of hairs on our heads, so he knows our hearts and our thoughts. Those who have not been given much, the poor, the refugee, the addicts, the mad, they don't have the capacity to serve because they can barely survive with what they have. But many of them have great faith. But the Pharisees and the wealthy have the capacity to serve and they choose not to. The people that Jesus scolds are supposed to know they are living in a combat zone. And he gets angry at those who have been granted the gift of faith but do not share it with others or they close the door to others. They reject their duty as servants trading up for the fool's jewels of ambition, reputation, honor, and glory. Pride is the root cause of everything that goes haywire in the Bible, from the garden to the cross. And that is wonder, makes, should make you wonder why we celebrate anything that has to do with pride. I think it was a poor choice, and it will play out badly. So be aware, pride is the root cause of everything that goes haywire in the Bible. Thomas Aquinas and other writers identify this in great detail. That's where we're going to stop today. Thanks for listening to Why Did Peter Sink? We have a few episodes left of the Babel series. I hope you keep listening. I hope you're finding it interesting. Thanks for being with me.